chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord had assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your richest blessing to the reading of it. We also ask, God, that you would add your blessing to our interpretation of it and our understanding of it. We ask that you would add blessing to the teaching of this word and to the receiving of this word. God, we ask that your spirit would be really present with us right now and that your word would be alive and active in our hearts and in our lives and you would take it to shape our lives so we can reveal your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, self-assessment's pretty tough. It's tough to see yourself appropriately, right? Isn't it tough to see yourself appropriately? It's tough even to see yourself, especially physically. Um, I remember there was a, a time when I had, when uh, Evan, my son, had something on his face. And I was like, hey, you have something on your face. And he said, no, I don't. And I said, yeah, you do, buddy. You got something on your face. Get it off. He's like, I don't have anything on my face. I'm like, look at it. It's right there. And he crossed his eyes doing this, trying to look at his own face. You know, it's tough. We can't really see our own face. That's why we have mirrors, right? That's the whole point of mirrors is to see ourselves because otherwise we can't actually see ourselves. And mirrors, they don't show everything, do they? I mean, first of all, they're backwards, right? And so you see things backwards in mirrors. But then they also don't show everything. I mean, it certainly doesn't show, like, my work ethic, right? The mirrors don't show my work ethic, and uh, they don't show my character, and they don't show what my face looks like when I'm scolding my kids. They don't show what all your faces look like right now when you're looking at me. 
And there's all sorts of things that the mirror doesn't show, that it doesn't reveal to us. And we don't see through the mirror, which is why we need the help of others to see ourselves appropriately. If uh, some of you are in work environments where you have 360 reviews, you know, where your boss reviews you, the people who work for you review you, your peers review you, you review yourself, and, you know, you have this whole process because you're trying to get an accurate picture of who you are because self-assessment's tough. It's really tough. And the, the scriptures tell us that the word of God is like a mirror to us. In James, we're told that the word, a man who reads the word of God and then walks away and doesn't do what the word says is like a person who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets who they are. If we read the word of God and we don't do what it says, it says somehow it's like looking into a mirror and forgetting what it says. Why is that? This is the reason. Because we find out who we are by reading this. How does that work? Well, the reason that works is because the author and the finisher of our faith, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, is God. Everything starts with God and everything ends with God. And the story of everything that was created by God, i.e. us, is found within his story. And if we don't know his story, then we don't know our own because we are just part of his story, like it or not. And so if we don't know the word of God, then we don't know who we are. And if we don't live according to the word of God, then we are denying who we are. And it's like looking in a mirror, walking away, and then completely forgetting who I am. So self-assessment starts with the word of God. Uh, appropriately seeing ourselves starts with knowing the word of God. But we have struggle knowing ourselves. And, you know, oftentimes we find ourselves in struggle because we don't have an accurate, accurate assessment of ourselves. We get deceived. This is what the enemy does, right? He deceives us. He gets us to think things that aren't appropriate. And all of us live under deception. We live in a culture of deception. We live in a world of deception. So the most spiritually mature among us right now are still deceived. We don't see clearly. We see through a glass dimly, is what the scriptures say. We don't see perfectly clear. And we grow in maturity as things get more and more clear, but we still struggle and, and we see we're self-deceived. And so when people come into the office for counseling, first, lots of times if a, if a couple comes into the office for counseling, they may be looking for tools to, how do, we, how do we care for each other more appropriately? But oftentimes what the counseling session ends up being is we look at the Word of God together, we listen and we hear what's going on in life, and then we try to clarify what reality is for where that person is or where the couple is versus what they're seeing in themselves, okay? That's, we're helping with true self-assessment. Well, that's what's going on right here between Paul and the church in Corinth. See, they were in this struggle. They were in this struggle and they were fighting over who was the better preacher and all that stuff. We went through all that already with Paul and Apollos and Peter and all that. And, and they're saying that when this hotshot Apollos came by who could really preach, you know, they were like, wow, man, we like this because he's giving us meat. He's teaching us stuff that like we're really liking what it is that he's teaching us right now. And they're yearning for more meat. And they were kind of accusing Paul of not teaching enough deep stuff. And what Paul says to them in response, you saw it when we read it here, he says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. You were not ready for it. You wanted this other stuff, but what you don't realize is you're not actually ready for that other stuff. See, they were self-deceived. They didn't have a good assessment of themselves. They thought that they were spiritually mature and that they had wisdom and that they called themselves spiritual. But what he was saying is they're actually 
Worldly is the word he uses. Worldly. And so this is, this is Paul kind of calling their bluff, helping them see themselves. Again, if a couple comes in and they're looking for counseling, they say, we really love each other. But, you know, as the more we talk, we realize the guy doesn't actually ever really think about his wife, you know? And, like, he's kind of going through the motions and doing his thing and in his spare time and with his spare money or whatever. He's not thinking about how to care for his wife. He'd actually rather be doing some other stuff, and this is just his thing. Then it's like, well... I hear you that you love, but when I read the mirror and I read the story of what love is and I hear what's going on, I'm just here to say, I don't, I don't think that that love is actually what we're saying. And for the wife, we might say, like, well, I hear that you love your husband, but like, I don't feel you getting behind him and supporting him and trying to help him receive honor and, and respect. You know, I don't see that. I, I hear more of the kind of biting and, and trying to get your own way and that type of thing. And, and that doesn't matter. The mirror says that's not really love. So you guys are saying you're in love, and we could give tools to work on stuff, but until you really love, then it's not going to work. And so we go into prayer, and we ask for God to help us love. You know, And in the same way, Paul's saying we could get into the deeper stuff and the tools of the faith and the spiritual gifts and you know all the, the other stuff of the Scriptures, but the bottom line is, is he's like, I don't actually think that you're spiritually mature enough to handle the deeper stuff or whatever yet. You're not quite there. And he says, actually, you think you're spiritual, but you're worldly. You're worldly. That's how he puts it on the other end. Now, this word worldly really kind of manifests itself in two ways. What he means is, first of all, they're worldly in their lifestyle, and they're worldly in their thinking. In other words, they're motivated by worldly things still, and they think the way the world thinks. And there's another passage of Scripture that really breaks this down. See, we, the way this works is that we reveal, don't we all reveal what's really going on inside by what happens on the outside, right? If, we're have, if I have a relationship with my wife or with my kids, that, that relationship has to do with love and trust. And love and trust are seen by what we do, not just by what we say. If we truly love, then the proof's in the pudding, they say. I have no idea. What does that even mean? The proof's in the pudding. Anybody know? I don't know. I, I don't know what that means. But anyway, the proof is in actually what we do. And there's a great example of that. Jesus says it in, um, in the gospel when he is talking about John the Baptist. Well, he's actually talking about people who are accusing him of all sorts of things and accusing John the Baptist of all sorts of things. And he says this fun thing. He says, all right, well, John the Baptist came and he didn't eat or drink. He, he came not eating or drinking. This guy lived a crazy lifestyle. He lived out in the desert and he ate locust and honey when he ate. I mean, he lived like an ascetic. He lived like out there, and he didn't, he hardly ate. He was fasting all the time, and when he did eat, he'd eat bugs, and he'd eat honey, okay? And then he said, and he didn't drink at all. He didn't let alcohol touch his lips. He didn't, you know, none of that. And he said, and what did we call him? Demon-possessed. We said he was demon-possessed. Why did we say he was demon-possessed? Well, today we wouldn't call him demon-possessed. What would we call him today? Crazy loco, you know, this guy's a nut job, like, what is he doing out there, you know, and he, this guy's like out in the desert eating bugs, crawling around, doing whatever he's doing, not living like anyone else in this world, so if everyone else is living this way, and he's out there being cuckoo, well, give him his cocoa puffs and call it a day, this guy's crazy, they would have called him demon-possessed, we don't call him demon-possessed, because if we do, we're crazy, right? And so that's the way it works. And so the, you do that weird thing over there, and that's the crazy person. He says, so he came not eating or drinking, and we called him demon-possessed. 
But then the Son of Man comes. Okay, and that's Jesus. So the Son of Man comes, and he said, and basically, and I came eating and drinking. I went to the parties with you guys. I hung out with you guys. And guess what you called me? A glutton and a drunkard. So if you do this, and you go out there like John the Baptist, you're demon-possessed. And if you go to the parties and hang out with you guys and eat your food and drink your stuff, well, now all of a sudden I'm a glutton and I'm a drunkard. And then he says this wonderful thing at the end of it. He says, but wisdom is proven right by her deeds. Wisdom is proven right by her deeds. Look at John the Baptist and look at his life. Can a demon-possessed person produce that? And he says, look at my life. You're judging me about these parties and telling me I'm a glutton and a drunkard or whatever. Really? You're going to call me a glutton and a drunkard? Look at my deeds. Look at my life. Does it look like I'm self-obsessed? Does it look like I'm just overindulgent? This is Jesus. And we call him the glutton and the drunkard, and we call John the Baptist the crazy man, but that's because we're not actually looking at the deeds. And what's going on in the church of Corinth is, yeah, okay, they're smart and they're growing and they're understanding and all of that, so they think that they're spiritually mature, but Paul's flipping the script on them and he says, but I'm looking at your deeds and I don't see the fruit of spiritual maturity. What I see is division. I see the struggle, the competition, and that reveals to him worldliness. Now, how does division reveal worldliness? We're going to cross-reference to look at that, okay? We're going to look over in, chapter, in James. This is, another one of the, this is another one of the apostles. This isn't one of the 12 apostles. This is actually this, the stepbrother, the half-brother of Jesus, okay? He, was the, he oversaw the council of Jerusalem. This was the apostle over Jerusalem. And this is the half-brother of Jesus. This isn't Peter, James, and John, James. This is uh, Mary's son, Mary and Joseph's son, James, okay? And some of you come from traditions that are taught that Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters. That's not what the Bible teaches. And, okay, he had half-brothers. They were half-brothers because they had the same mom. They didn't have the same dad. Jesus' dad is a little different. Hello. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's James who's, who's writing, okay? And he's going to be uh, writing here in James chapter 4, and we're going to read the first five verses of that. Again, the question is, how is it that when Paul saw division among the church of Corinth, that he said, well, then that reveals that you guys are worldly? Well, we're turning to James to answer that question, okay? James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Good, he's about to answer our question. They're divided. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you do not have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? You see what he's saying? 
He's saying, this is why we're divided. This is why we fight and we quarrel. Because we want the things of the world. We're worldly. The world promises immediate pleasures, self-gratification. And we chase that stuff. And as soon as we start chasing that stuff, that puts us in competition with everyone else. Because everyone else is chasing it. And I want to be the one receiving the pleasure. And you watch what happens in a marriage or in a friendship when two people want to be the one who are receiving the pleasure. Well, at some point, that comes into conflict because they need the other one to help them get the pleasure, but that's at the expense of the other person's pleasure, right? And that's where we fight and we quarrel because we're trying to please ourselves. We're narcissistic. We're self-focused. It's about me, and I want pleasure. And Paul and James call that worldly. And when there's worldly motivations and worldly desires in our heart, when it's about me and my fun time and my good stuff and my success and my glory and my pleasure, when my life is about me, then it will inevitably cause certain levels of division and separation. I either fight with those I'm close to or I just separate from them, you know? Because to be together and wanting stuff and both of us wanting stuff, it causes struggle and it causes division okay but underneath of that there's this thing like the spiritual person is very different you remember what jesus says jesus says this he says those who hunger for righteousness in the beatitudes you remember what he says about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they will be filled they will be filled they're not in that place where they need more and they don't come into the relationship with other people at a struggle where they need to prove themselves next to the other person or where they need to get something from the other person they're filled those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, why? Because righteousness is found in Christ, and Christ is present. And if I have Christ, I'm fulfilled because what I long for is His righteousness. And if I'm longing for His righteousness, oh, there's plenty to be had, you know? And, and it's right there with me because of the cross, and I'm fulfilled by that. But if what I want is I still want this stuff, the stuff of the world, well, you know, when was the last time that you bought something that really, truly satisfied you for a long period of time. You know, we all know how it works. You buy something, it's a fun toy, that was great. What's next, right? And that's, you conquered that mountain. You got that new promotion. You did that new thing. There was a success. How long does that last? Until there's another thing on the horizon. You know, and whatever it is that we chase, we're never filled. Unless what we're hungering for is righteousness. But we're not. We hunger for worldliness if we're the church of Corinth. Of course, we're not. You know, we're the church of Parkville. We all struggle with this, don't we? I mean, this is part of our struggle, is that our heart yearns for self-pleasure, and we get divided. Well, this leads to the other point, is that it's not just that our lifestyle and our motivations are worldly, it's that our thought process struggles with worldliness. Our thought process, how we think continue on, you know, and, and that means that we become self-dependent instead of God-dependent. As a matter of fact, I want to say something about that before we read the rest of this passage in James. See, <coughs> what happens is, this is really easy, is that if we want the things, we train ourselves to think this way. Because we know our story is found in the story of God. And we were created for His glory, right? So if we are revealing the glory of God, and if we're going after his pleasure instead of our own, what we're told in the scriptures is that we will have the most acute form of pleasure in our life if our life becomes about pleasing God. 
So I was designed by God to be a person who brings pleasure to him. If I make my life about bringing pleasure and glory to God, then I will feel most fulfilled because that's how I was designed. But we're deceived by the enemy to think that if we go after my pleasure, I will feel better. But as soon as I do, I feel empty right? It's crazy how it messes with us. But if we can get to the place where we're actually submitting to God and trying to reveal his glory and his character and let him do his thing, let him be seen, let him be pleased, somehow me as a created and worshipful being, I find my purpose and I find my life and everything makes sense, right? But here's the problem. Because of the deception that I still want to go after my own pleasure, I recognize something. I'm smart enough to know something. All of us are is that when I ask God, I don't receive, is what James says, because when I ask, I ask with the wrong motivations, right? So this is what happens. I know that I'm created for God's pleasure. We all know this intuitively. Whether we can articulate it the way I'm articulating it or not isn't the point, but we know it spiritually. I was created for his pleasure. I have these other pleasures that war within me. If I go and ask God for those pleasures he is most likely not going to give them to me. Why? Because they're not helpful to me. They're not helpful to him. The only person they're helpful to is Satan, you know? And he's not trying to help Satan out. So he's not going to give me those things. What if I still want them? What if even though God won't give them to me, I still want them? Then how do I have to get them? Right here. That's how I got to get them. I got to get them with my own strength, you know? I got to get them right here with my own wisdom. And so we learn to live by our own wit and by our own strength because we want our own ends. And God won't give them to us. So if we're going to get our ends, then we got to be self-dependent, self-reliant, self-taught, and we got to figure out how to get the stuff that the world offers. And so we do it according to our own way. So we say we want our ends and God won't give it, so we have to go by our means. Well, we get to a place eventually where we recognize, well, maybe I'm supposed to be going after God's ends. Because if I'm only going after my end, that doesn't lead to a good end. So, you know, we get to the end and it says, well, God wants this from me. So then I say this. This is what ends up happening. Is that as a Christian, and, and I, I struggle with this all the time, all of us do, is we say, okay, well, God wants this from me. So I'm going to figure out how to do that. And we've trained ourselves to lean into our own strength. And so now, in my own strength, I go after trying to accomplish what it is that God wants me to do. And let me tell you, this is why I do it in my own strength. Because I still think that I can get both. This is why. Because I still think... See, this is the way it is. God says, here's the end. I will give you all things. How does he give you all things? If you seek first the kingdom of God. So if I give my life, if I sell it all and give it to the poor, if I give my life to God, if I let go of my own identity and I throw myself at Christ, then he said, all it will be mine. He will give me everything, but I got to let go of everything and get a hold of him. Well, I'm not ready to let go of everything yet, so this is what I'm going to do. What is it, Jesus, that you want to see from my life? You want to see me love my family. You want to see me invest in the church. So I'll tell you what. I will give you this amount of time to go do the church thing. I will go over and do this, this, and this for my family. But underneath of it all, my heart still wants my stuff. And so I try to shortcut the way to get done what it is that God wants to get done because I can do it 
quicker. And so I'm going to get done what God wants, and I'm going to check this box off so that it looks like to God that I'm doing it, and it looks like to me I'm doing it so I can feel good about my God thing, but underneath of it over here, I'm still going after my thing, right? And we're deceived, and this is why it says, do not be deceived. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You cannot chase worldly pleasure and think the way the world does and live like everyone else does and chase after my success and chase after my money and chase after my pleasure and still expect that things are going to be okay with me and God. It's not going to work that way. He says, as soon as we go after the things of the world, this is what James just told us, we become enemies, enemies of God. How is that? Because the purposes of God are to reveal His glory. And as soon as I depend on myself and go after my own thing, I am working against the glory of God. I am not revealing God's character. I am not revealing self-sacrificial love. Now I am revealing selfishness, narcissism, the opposite of God. I am looking at myself and pleasing me, and that is not revealing the glory of God. Therefore, I'm deceived if I think that I can go after my pleasure and still be doing God's work. That's not the way it works. It's just, it doesn't work. The math doesn't add up. It doesn't fit. But we've learned to depend on ourselves. And so we learn even to try to do God's stuff by our own means. And we think, we'll get to God's ends by our means so that we can also get to our ends. But this is the way it works. It works simple. It's like this. The only way that we get to God's ends is by us releasing ourselves and living by God's means. So if we live God's way, then God can accomplish his ends. If we try to accomplish God's ends by our means, it never works. If we want the end that God has for our lives, then we have to submit to his means, his way of doing things, okay? So that's the word of God, the mirror held up in front of me, saying this is the way he said I am supposed to function. And if I walk away and don't live by that, then I'm forgetting who I am. I'm forgetting I'm a created being. I'm forgetting that I'm a member of the body of Christ and this, he's the head and we submit to him. All right, so now I'm gonna pull us back to James and finish up that portion in James that was explaining all this to us. So we're gonna look at verse six and he says this, but he gives us more grace. I was talking with Josh about this between the services and he said, you know what? He said, uh, I studied that more grace passage and that more right there, Actually, the, the, the appropriate uh, translation of that word more is he gives us different grace. Interesting. So he gives us different grace. That is why the scripture said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives a different kind of grace to those who are humble. What does that mean? Well, here, he'll spell it out for us. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You catch that? Double-minded. Our minds go two different directions. And then he says this, verse 9, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and change your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Nothing like some good, positive thinking. You know, like, wow, James, that's heavy, dude. 
Like, why are you trying to make it so sad and harsh? This is why. Because we're deceived. We're double-minded. And we're chasing our pleasure. And he's saying this. He said, that joy that we're getting from the worldly pleasures is what deceives us. When we're getting joy from the wrong things, when we're finding pleasure, when we're looking forward to the wrong things, we're training ourselves to go after the pleasures of this world, and therefore we're not in submission to what it is that God has for us. And we think that we're playing by God's rules, but we're not. And this brings us back to what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Basically he's saying this, listen, spiritual maturity, you think you're spiritually mature and that you need the meat, the teaching, the meat, the deeper stuff, so you can figure out how to do cooler stuff for the kingdom or whatever. And you can have stuff that sounds really cool and everything. He's like, but here's the deal. Spiritual maturity, and this is the basic essence of the message, spiritual maturity is not about whether or not I know more stuff. It's not about whether I can recite more scripture. It's not about any of that. Spiritual maturity is how much I'm revealing the character of God in my life. Okay? So just like a mature relationship reveals itself by how the couple has affection with each other or a mature uh, parent and kid relationship reveals in the affection and the trust with one another. In the same way, if we have a relationship with God that is revealed by action, that is revealed by trust, it is revealed in the deeds. And what he's saying is God will be glorified in those who are spiritually mature. So look at a life. Is it about me or is it about God? And we just stop in this minute and we ask ourselves a couple questions. And I I have to ask myself this question all the time, these questions, okay? First of all, how much of my life is about me and how much of it is about God? And I don't just mean like, am I doing God's stuff? I just mean, is the motivation of my life about God's pleasure or about mine? You know? And then the thought process. How about the thought process? When I live my life, do I live by my power and my strength and do things that make sense to me? Or have I submitted myself and said, God, how do you want me to do this? And am I scouring the word of God, trying to figure out how he says to do this? Or am I using just my noggin to try to figure it out in my own strength? You know, and that's when we ask, when Jesus asks these, puts these statements out there in the Beatitudes, I have to ask, am I filled right now because what I really hunger for is righteousness? Or am I still hungry because I'm still looking for something else? He also says that the pure in heart will see God. Am I like in this place where I'm seeing God? You know, where I'm seeing Him all around me and I'm excited because my heart's being purified, because my motives are pure? Or am I looking for other stuff so I'm missing God all the time? Or how about this one? He says, the poor in spirit, it's another way of saying the humble, the poor in spirit will see the kingdom of heaven. Am I seeing the kingdom of heaven just poof, exploding in my life. And if I'm seeing that, it's because I'm in submission to Christ and I'm allowing Him to live my life. You know? I'm in submission to Him and I'm watching the kingdom of heaven just burst out in my life. But if I'm not seeing the kingdom of heaven manifest in my life, it's most likely because I'm taking charge of my life. I'm not just greedy, I'm also arrogant. You know? And I think that I should run my life. So I'm doing it, but guess what? That doesn't reveal the kingdom of heaven. Because God's not in charge. And he's the only one who produces the kingdom of heaven. But when I'm depending on him, the poor in spirit get to see the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we have to ask ourselves those questions. We have this struggle, a Corinth struggle with it. I struggle with it. 
And we have this struggle that once we feel like we've gotten the basics of the message of Christ, that we're kind of on our own, and we grow a little bit out of that need of desperate submission, you know, and we grow to the place where we're kind of self-dependent. And, we're, and, and that's a problem, because when you define spiritual maturity, who was the most spiritually mature person in the scriptures? This is the easy answer. It's the answer to all the questions. Jesus, right, yeah. So he's the most spiritual. You know, where's the picture of spiritual maturity? Here's the picture of spiritual maturity. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The picture of spiritual maturity is Jesus, and he's sprawled out on a rock, and he's praying, and the blood is coming out of his pores because there's so much stress. What's the stress about? It's about his desire. This is uh, Shirley Elliott in first service. When I asked this, she said, oh, yeah, he's stressed because he's trying so hard to submit. You know? And it is. What's he submitting to? Well, Jesus the Son is submitting to the Father. Uh, And Jesus and God is submitting to the bride. He's submitting to the bride of Christ because he knows the only way that we can be freed is if he goes to the cross. And so the way that husbands are supposed to submit to their wives, you know, you know, it says to submit to one another. And the way that husbands are to submit to their wives is by loving them the way Christ did, who did everything within his power to present her holy and blameless to himself. That's what Ephesians 5 says. And you see Jesus in this moment submitting to the bride of Christ, loving the bride of Christ as he's sweating blood and he's submitting to us. He's submitting to us because he's loving us in this affection. And he's submitting to his father because his father's way of this whole thing of justice needing to be reconciled by him going to the cross looks extremely painful. And everything inside of Jesus' flesh is screaming out saying, no, I don't want to do this. No, I don't want to do this. And yet the struggle in there of submission of him saying, I am not going to just take charge of my life and live in a worldly, fleshly way. I am going to release my life to the bride and I'm going to release my life to the father and I'm going to live the way that the mirror tells me I'm supposed to live. And Jesus submits and he decides that he loves his bride enough, submits to his father and he goes to the cross. It's the picture of spiritual maturity. See, here's the thing. We tend to think that spiritual maturity is about growth, that we grow in spiritual maturity. And yet John the Baptist, the the greatest man to ever live short of Jesus, said by Jesus, says this, that I may decrease so that he may increase. The picture of spiritual maturity is not about growth. It's the opposite. It's about decreasing. It's about getting smaller in size. It's about me shrinking so that God can get bigger. I will never forget the day that I heard about this denominational leader who was a, who was a, uh, a seminary prof and a, an educator and all of that deep knowledge of Scripture and everything and said something that rocked my world that uh, I did not appreciate, that rocked my world. I still don't appreciate it to this day. And he said this. He said, it was, after, it was after a big denominational dispute over atonement and over the cross and all of that. And this is what he said. He said, can we finally get past the blood and guts of religion? And can we move on to some of the deeper things of the faith? In other words, what he was saying was, okay, we've talked about the cross. We know that we're supposed to, you know, accept the cross in order to come into the kingdom of God. But can we please get past that and start talking about other things now? 
Can we start talking about, you know, spiritual maturity? Can we talk about how we serve others? Can we talk about the spiritual gifts that we have? Can we talk about the deeper poetry of the scriptures? Can we talk about the original languages? Can we talk about this? Can we talk about that? Can we talk about all those other things? But listen, spiritual maturity has absolutely nothing to do with what it is we know beyond the gospel. It's not about how far we know the scriptures beyond just the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. You know what spiritual maturity is about? It's about how far the gospel of Jesus Christ has made it into every corner of my life. That's what spiritual maturity is. You see, these people thought, the church of Corinth thought, we want meat. We don't want to just hear about Jesus crucified. You remember that Paul keeps saying, I'm not coming with wise or persuasive words. I'm not coming with superior knowledge. I'm not debating theology with you. I come with one thing, Christ and him crucified. And they're saying, we're sick of the milk. Give us the meat. We want to hear some of the other stuff, some of the deeper wisdom. Some of the... And he's like, I'm not giving it to you. You know why? It's because you're not mature enough yet because this thing that you call milk, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it hasn't made it into your life enough yet for you to handle anything else. Because I look at the way you deal with each other. I look at the way you deal with your family. I look at the way you engage your workplace. It's not about Christ. It's about you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ hasn't made its way into every inch of your life. You're not depending on God. You're still living for your own worldly pleasures. You're still going after what it is that you want. And when you have a problem with your spouse or with your kids, you're not saying, I can't handle this. God, come in and do this for me. And I'm not submitting to his word and saying, look, I don't get it, but I'll do it your way because you said so. And I'll let you take care of the rest. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to find ways to solve problems, get this taken care of so I can still get what I want. And Paul says, if I see that in your life, that reveals something. And it reveals that there isn't spiritual maturity. And you might be able to quote insane amount of scripture, Church of Corinth, and you might be able to do this and do that. You know, you might know all about the spiritual gifts. You might know whatever it is. But it doesn't really matter. Because spiritual maturity isn't about how much we know beyond the gospel. It's about how much that gospel has found its way into my marriage, into my personal psyche, into my relationship with my neighbors. The blood of Christ is good for all things. It's good for all things. And as I learn to live by the gospel, I reveal spiritual maturity. I reveal spiritual maturity. We just had members brought in, uh, you know, this morning. A number of you, we're really happy to have you. Thanks for coming. We like having you a part of the family. Uh, One of the things we've been working on as uh, elders has been working on what does it look like to be a member of the church? What what does that mean? What does that look like? Because, you know, there's a couple things that happen in what the church is now today. You know, the church today... Is, is beyond just a community of people. The church today is also a worship service. It's this thing that happens on Sunday morning, right? And this thing that happens on Sunday morning, anybody is welcome to walk in here and sit their tail on one of these pews. They're not pews. One of these chairs. And listen, for some crazy reason, to people up here talking and to well, you can see why they'd want to listen to the band, you know. But like, you know, someone can come in and, and engage in this moment. And we welcome with open arms anyone who wants to come in at any time on a Sunday morning and, and, and sit their tail down and, and be a part of that thing. That's great, okay? 
But that does not necessarily mean that I'm a follower of Christ, right? That just means that I showed up at a worship service. That's all that really means. And there are places in our lives where we need help assessing ourselves and seeing where we're at in our relationship with God. And part of the responsibility of those who guard the word of God, the elders of a church by the scriptures are to be those who guard the word of God. And part of their responsibility is to help reveal to others, put a mirror in front of everyone saying, this is what the word of God says. How are we doing? You know? That's the, and so part of the, the, the concern of the elders is that we have places among us where we can look at and say, how are we doing? I mean, it's great that we're, we're being a part of this or doing this, but we've got to have that stuff, that mirror that's held in front of me that says, am I actually living as a follower of Christ? And membership in a church is not like a membership at the health club, is it? It's a little bit different. Like membership at the health club. I mean, some of you, there's probably a number of you who are a part of different health clubs around here, and you all pay different fees, but you all pay a fee. And when you pay the fee, you might get access to a pool if you go to a nice one, and you get weight room, and you get, might get a track. You might even get like yoga classes or something. I don't know, whatever you get, you know. I, the one I go to, you get a few little weights. You know, that's what you get. And, but you pay a fee, and I pay a lot less. And, and I pay this fee, and then you, you get access to these, you know, these machines and these weights or whatever, you know. And that's how it works. And we have this tendency within us sometimes to think about membership in those terms. You know, like membership is if I show up at church on Sunday and if I put some stuff in the plate, well, then I'm a membership to the kingdom of God, which means I get eternal life. Kick down the door, I'm in, you know. And so I paid my dues. But that's not how membership works. That's not what membership in the body of Christ is all about, is it? There's only one membership fee to the kingdom of God. There is only one way to eternal life. There is only one way to access to the Father. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Christ and Him crucified is the only way I have a relationship with God. It's the only way I have eternal life. Okay? And if I begin to trust my life into Christ, then I have access to the body of Christ. I now become a part, a member of the body of Christ. But here, as a local church, it's our job to to stay, to kind of show and hold that mirror up of where is it that we're really trusting Christ and where are we not? Because anyone could walk in and say, well, yeah, I trust Christ. Cool, sign him up. You know, we're good. But that doesn't actually, we, we got to say, is that actually happening or are we just saying that? And so what we've worked at is these membership expectations um, as an elder board that are things that reveal the basics from Scripture, these are scriptural principles that reveal what does it look like for someone who's actually participating in the life of the glory of God, in the kingdom of God. Someone who has given up their life and has now said, I follow Christ. He, he is the king. He is the dad. I'm in submission to him. I trust him. My life is no longer my own. It's now his. And what does that look like in a local body? And so here, this is we're going to end by me listing these things uh, for us. The, the members who have just become members have received these, you know, so, and you guys are actually the guinea pigs on this one. Brand new. Okay, so you guys, man, the bar was set so high for you guys compared to the rest of us. They're, these are not, these are not actually, uh, these are not requirements for membership because the only requirement for membership is me trusting Christ. That's what, that's what, it, that's what is required of me to, to be in the kingdom of God. However, we expect that just like if two people give themselves in a covenant of marriage and they say that they will love each other, that that will be revealed in certain ways. 
In the same way, we should have expectations of people who love each other in marriage that they should be home and they should care for each other and they should talk to each other and maybe smile every now and then or something. You know, in the same way, the scriptures say that if we're actually a part of the body of Christ, there are things that should follow. And these are expectations that the elders are saying the scriptures have of us. And so here they are. You're waiting with bated breath. First, that we've received Christ's forgiveness and entered into a relationship with God and displayed it through baptism. These are the basics. That our life, we believe that we need God. So we've received his forgiveness, we live by his forgiveness, and we've revealed that through baptism. Secondly, that we share the basic theological beliefs of Parker Ford Church. And let me tell you, that is not exhaustive. That is not extensive. We do not have big, specific doctrinal statements with all nuances of the doctrine. We don't really do that because we find that it's really easy to split hairs over certain kinds of theology and it ends up just like the church in Corinth where they're fighting over Apollos and Paul and getting distracted from the gospel. So we try to keep the centerpiece that binds us all together theologically pretty simple. There are things in our website that tell you the basic theological threads of the church. There's pamphlets out there there on the welcome table that tell you what that is. Third, that we're growing in biblical lifestyle, relationships, and spiritual practices. This is an important one. It's an important one. That if I'm a member of the body of Christ, then I'm saying he's my dad. That I'm saying I'm, I'm under submission to him. And what that means is I'm saying that I trust him. And that means that in the situations in my life where I'm living worldly, I am learning to submit to him and trust his means for his ends instead of my means for my ends. And if we believe that someone, if someone's saying, I'm actually in a relationship with God, then that should manifest in a change of lifestyle because we're submitting to God. What's more is, is that you can't actually have a good marriage without talking to your spouse and you can't have a good relationship with God without communication with God. So there's a basic expectation that the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices are moving in, in a member at Parker Ford Church. In other words, we read the Bible and we pray. This is a basic expectation, okay, that if we're a member of the church, we believe we should be reading the Bible, God's communication to us, His primary communication to us, and that we should be praying. This is a daily thing, man. We think this is like, I'm in a relationship with God. This is the most important relationship in my life. Well, then I better be communicating, you know? Okay, basic, all these things are scriptural. You can, there's going to be, there's papers that are in the back, on these tables in the back. When you go out, you, you can grab one of these papers, okay? PFC membership expectations. It explains from Scripture where those things come from. Okay, a couple more things here. We believe weekly attendance at Sunday services is just basic expectation. I mean, saying that I'm married and I love my family, and yet anytime I get the chance, I, I'm not showing up to be home for dinner with them, you know, like... Well, it's hard to kind of justify that. We, if we're a part of this thing together, then we actually need to be present together. So we believe that, uh, and this is a tough one for people. This is growing more and more difficult for people to be connected. We're all busy and everything, but if we've said we've submitted to Christ and that this is family and everything, well, then we've got to be here. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't mind anyone who comes and wants to come whenever they want to come and, and, and then not be here whenever. I don't have any problem with that. People can stop in here whenever they want. But if we're going to say we're members, we are members of the body of Christ, we are members of this local uh, expression of the body of Christ, well, then we're here. We're in it together. That's weekly attendance. That's an expectation, a biblical expectation. Forsake not the gathering together of the believers from Hebrews 10. 
Basic participation in the PFC discipleship. This is, we are not just a, a worship service. We are a body of people who are to encourage each other, disciple people. The scriptures reveal that. There are all sorts of discipleship opportunities across our church. There's Sunday school things. There's uh, journey groups. There's uh, service projects. There's prayer meetings. There's all sorts. And no one can make all that stuff. There's no, that doesn't work. But we do expect that there, as a member, that there's some sort of participation in the discipleship life of the church. Uh, that, that we're intentionally trying to connect with other believers in the church. You can't actually be a family with others. We can't be a body unless we get to know each other and we got, we got to make efforts to actually be engaged in that. That we serve. When we are baptized and we come up out of the waters, when we come into a relationship with God, we are now members of the body of Christ and we'll get to this later in Corinthians. We each have a function. We are a finger or an elbow or something in the body of Christ. That means that we serve in some way. If we're a member of the body of Christ, that means that we're part of the functioning of the body of Christ. We serve in the body of Christ. We do stuff. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's here at church. It might mean that it's a missional wing of the church where uh, you know someone's at work and they're doing a Bible study at work and they're trying to care for people there or they're doing some stuff with their family, but we should all be working at ways of service. And then uh, another thing, two more. One is that we're giving a percentage of our income to the church. This is just basic biblical stuff. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we're in, we're financially invested. This isn't just because the church wants to get in your pocketbook or something. This is a basic principle of a relationship with God. That we, where we put our treasure, that's where our heart is. If God is number one, he gets the first fruits. That's a biblical principle. Last thing, that we have God-honoring church communication. If we are a part of this body together, then we reveal it in the way we communicate, just like a marriage, right? We always say, what's the biggest problem in marriage? Everyone always says communication. Well, communication's kind of the problem. That's a symptom. Underneath of it is a heart, you know? And if a heart is turned towards someone, we communicate with them. We're kind in the way we communicate. We're respectful in the way we communicate. We're, we're trying to connect with them. We want to communicate. If we come to church but never communicate with each other or if we communicate in ways that are inappropriate, it's revealing where we're actually at. Okay, these are the basic expectations. Again, I would encourage you, please, especially if you're already a member, grab one of these on the way out. Look at it. Take this home. Pray over it. Read the scriptures about it. Listen to what it's saying. Ask God, is there ways where I'm not submitting to you, where I'm not trusting you, where I'm like the Corinthians, where I think I'm spiritually maturing and I'm saying that I trust you, but the basics aren't actually being revealed. Okay? And then from there, you can uh, ask God to communicate what the next steps are. Please join me in prayer.